Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to be looking this morning at verses 11 through 15 of Hebrews chapter 11. This is the great chapter on faith. We're looking at the honor roll of faith. But please do not get the impression that your name very well could be in this list. So don't get the impression that the people on the honor roll are perfect. They are not. They are saved by grace sinners who are being sanctified day by day as they struggle, as they strive as sojourners upon this earth, going, heading for home. They are Christian pilgrims who desire to be more Christ-like as they long for heaven. But remember, it's never the perfection of your life. It's always the direction of your life. So is the direction of your life to please God? Is it the direction of your life to love the Lord your God, to obey His Word, and to strive to walk by faith? in a way that really honors Him. See, when the eye of faith is fixed on the goal, then the faith of that person becomes visible to other people. It becomes visible in what they do. It becomes visible in the way they live their lives. That person is a person of faith. That's what we've been seeing in the lives of those who are recorded in this chapter on the honor honor roll of faith. And so far, each example of what it means to have faith and to live by faith, actually, they have had their peculiar and particular corner on showing us what it looks like. It helps us to see what living by faith actually is, able to lived by faith by worshiping God in an acceptable manner. And we learn that the only way you can approach God is this way, through a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. Jesus Christ becomes the ultimate in that typology. Enoch, living by faith, is walking with God in a pleasing manner. He knew how to do it, and he walked right into heaven, didn't even die. Noah, living by faith, is obeying God's word in an unquestionable manner. Noah built an ark. And of course, you know the story. The floods did come. Judgment did come. And God did save Noah and his family. So we have already learned that what makes any person well-pleasing to God is faith. And without it, there is no possibility at all in pleasing God. Abraham is no different. Where his example highlights again some part of the meaning and the essence of faith. And it helps us to gain a clearer understanding of how we may live by faith so as to please our Lord. For Abraham, living by faith is obeying God in a patient manner. And all generations I've already mentioned, up until Abraham, provoked the Lord, closed their ears to God's truth. And this is one of the characteristics that was very unique about Abraham, that he listened to God. 
And when God called, Abraham hearkened to his command. In other words, Abraham obeyed to go out, and he went out obediently and patiently. And so far, I highlighted two characteristics of his faith. It is a patient faith that trusts carefully and listens. And it's a patient trust that carefully perseveres. And it perseveres through difficult circumstances for long periods of time with an inward longing for home, which God is building into us. So today, I want to take... I actually want you to note another characteristic about Abraham's faith, and that's what I'll spend time with this morning. And that's this. He had a patient trust that carefully rested in God's faithfulness. He had a patient trust that rested in the faithfulness of God. Now, this becomes vital and very important for you and I as we live our Christian faith. Now, look at verse number 11. Now, I want to bring out something on verse number 11 that's a little bit different this morning because to show you something, let's read it first. Verse 11, reading from the New American Standard Bible, says, By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Now, brethren, I must really bring this to your attention. A problem on how difficult it is sometimes to translate a passage of Scripture, and this is one of them. Now, the reason why I am bringing this up is so I can show you how difficult it is to wrestle down the correct meaning of a text from the original Greek language. And the problem in chapter 11 and verse 11 is this. Who's the subject? Is the subject Sarah, the wife of Abraham, or is the subject Abraham? See, most of our translations have, and so has the New American Standard, translated it Sarah. Right? As the subject, without giving any of the technical background, I say this that Sarah cannot be the subject of the passage. Now, I don't mean to offend anyone, and I will try to say this as safely as possible. For if Sarah was the subject of the passage, it would not be faithful to the Greek construction. Now, If Sarah is the subject, and this this is how it reads, by faith Sarah received the ability to cast down seed. That's literally what it says in the Greek. So you see, casting down seed is alone a male function. Since the woman has the egg, the man has the seed. In fact, the very Greek word is spermatos, which of course focuses on the seed of the man. So the normal result of the casting of seed into the woman is that she conceives. And the product of the seed is, and the egg coming together, of course, without, if anything's, nothing's preventing that, is children, offspring, progeny, family, posterity. Right? That's what comes from it. So see, Sarah can't be the subject. Abraham has to, remains the subject of, of the passage of, of Scripture on faith. Uh, so it, 
Abraham best fits the Greek construction because he remains the focal point of this passage of Scripture. And there's really no good reason for Abraham to be removed from the main person of faith. So then the translation would be this. It was by faith that he, Abraham, was able to have a child even though Sarah was barren and he was too old, he believed. Actually, it is the New International Version that does give the, really handles his passages the best right here. This is what it reads in the NIV, by faith Abraham. Even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. Now, so Abraham being the main subject still of the whole section of Scripture, but you see both, and the point is this, both had no ability to bear children. Not only when they were young were they unable to bear children, but both were past age. Abraham being 99, Sarah being 90 years old, that biologically it is impossible to have any children. So they have a double whammy against them. They couldn't have children in the first place when they were young. And when they got older, then it's impossible to have children at this particular age. And that was, that's the point. So the main point of our passage, again, it's not that sense she considered, but if you look in verse number 11, it says, he considered him faithful who had made the promise. That is the subject. That is, I mean, that is the point of this passage, that Abraham considered him, him faithful who made the promises. So Abraham's faith looked past human impossibility to the source of the one who promised. In other words, Abraham took his impossible situation and waited against a greater impossibility. Now you ask, what is that greater impossibility? Well, I'm glad you asked that. Well, that God who made the promise could actually break the promise. That's a greater impossibility. When God makes a promise, he doesn't break a promise. And that's what Abraham was banking on, if I can say that. So see, here is where Abraham's faith really shines brightly because he knew that God may be patiently and safely relied upon. In fact, faithfulness is so essential to the divine character of God that for God to be unfaithful is to actually deny himself. And as Paul told the, the young pastor Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, he says this, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In other words, for God to be unfaithful to the word of his promise means he would cease to be God. He would be just like us. We have a hard time keeping promises. Or we have no ability to keep the promise that we made. Or the circumstances of life bring us to a place where we can't keep the promise, even though our intention was always to keep the promise. 
See, God don't have any of those problems. God's going to keep the promise because he said he's going to keep it. He's able to keep it. And he, of course, will keep it. And so to be like Abraham would be to accept the faithfulness of God and then act upon God's faithfulness, just as in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, where it already informed us, where it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So when I use this passage sometime back, I said the motive for holding fast the truth or that salvation comes through Christ alone, period, is for he who promises faithful. It goes back to what we understand and believe about God, even from the Old Testament, that God cannot lie, that God cannot deny himself in any way and if he didn't keep his promise then he would deny his very character his very nature and god just simply can't do that so making promises today seems not to have the same weight it once did even on on the level of 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 humanity arthur pink uh commenting on faithfulness, said unfaithfulness is one of the most outstanding sins of these evil days. In the business world, a man's word is, with rare exception, no longer his bond. We need 15, 20, 30, 100 pages of of legal documents to make sure we do what we ought to do, right? In the social world, marital infidelity abounds on every hand. The sacred bonds of wedlock are broken with as little regard as discarding an old garment. In the ecclesiastical realm, thousands have solemnly covenanted to preach the truth, now have no scruples about setting it aside and even attacking and denying it. From Genesis to Revelation. In the church realm, Also, those who started off faithfully listening to the Word of God have become dull of hearing, and some have stopped listening to sound preaching and have started looking for talks that suit them better and suit their conscience. And Scripture surely affirms the rarity of faithfulness. I went and did a little study of this, and I found three passages of Scripture that are very, very pointed on this. For example, the question is, is there any faith out there? Is anybody faithful? This is what the Scripture says. Psalm 12, verse number 1, Help, O Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. And then Proverbs 20, verse 6, Many a man proclaims his own loyalty, but who can find a trustworthy, a faithful man? And then in Luke 18, 8, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It is rare to see this quality of faith in people. It ought to be in the people of God. That's something God, remember, that's a communicable attribute that God has given us. We're to be holy as he is holy, and we're to be as faithful like he is. If we weren't once we're not faithful, we ought to be faithful from today on, 
if we're a believer in Christ Jesus. Because that's what the Spirit of God is working in us. He's working in us this desire to be faithful, but also to the trust the one who is faithful. In fact, when faithfulness is identified, it's highlighted, even by the Lord himself. I'd like you to take your Bibles for a minute, and let's read and see right there in Luke chapter 7, verse 1 through 10, this is when Jesus meets up with a centurion officer and found in this officer a characteristic that was worth noting. Look at where where it goes in verse number 1 of Luke 7. It says, When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum, and a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation. It is he who built us our synagogue. Verse 6, now Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Verse 7, for this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Then look at verse 8. For I also am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Look at verse 9. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, and turned turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith see jesus is looking for people who have great faith this kind of faith he highlighted it he identified it he made sure people say this is what i'm looking for this is the character of the people that ought to follow me I ran across, actually Dwayne ran across a story and he had given it to me a couple weeks ago. And uh, the title of the story was The Crazy Gringo. And um, I said, I have to read this. The title gets me right away. But it's about a guy named Dr. Cameron Townsend, co-founder of Wycliffe Bible Translators, who went to Peru and had a conversation with Jimenez Bora, who was one of the leading government officials to give him the authority to ask for what he was going to do. So this is how the conversation went with him. Mr. Townsend, who's going to do all this work? Of course, translate the Bible in, in Peru, right? Who's going to do all this work? It'll be done by trained linguists, young men and women with college degrees who are willing to spend their lives among the indigenous people. This is a difficult task. How many are, going, are willing to go? None yet. But when I go back to the United States and challenge them, many will volunteer. The jungle is impossible. How will you get those people out to the villages? I plan to use airplanes to land on the rivers and airstrips that can be cleared in the jungle. How many planes do you have? None. But when I share the need, God will give us enough planes. 
Who will fly the planes? Hundreds of young people, seasoned pilots and mechanics will volunteer. How many pilots and mechanics do you have now? None. But God will send them along. There is much disease in the jungle. How will you stay healthy? We'll have clinics staffed by doctors and nurses. How many doctors and nurses do you have? None. But God will supply them. Who will finance this? The United States government? A wealthy foundation? No. I will go back to the United States with this plan, and God will supply. All the workers will raise their own support in their local churches. After Dr. Townsend left, Mr. Bora turned to an aisle and said to one of his compadres, there goes a crazy gringo, the craziest one I've ever seen in my life. But you know what? His vision turned into be the largest movement of Bible translation in the world that the world has ever seen. See, this is a God-sized task. And you know what a God-sized task takes? Faith. Don't have any of it, but God wants the Word of God to go to the world God wants the Word of God to be translated in other languages, so He will provide. And He is still providing. He is still providing. Why? Because our God is faithful. And it takes faith to trust Him. Usually when a promise is made, a promise is only as good as the character and integrity of the person who makes it. Well, it says in Psalm 36, 5, Your loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. See, faithfulness is one of the glorious perfections of his being. Psalm 89, 8 tells us, O Lord of hosts, who is like you? O mighty Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. O Lord, see, God is a God who never forgets. He never fails. He never falters. He never will forfeit his word. That's who he is. So the point is, our God may be patiently and safely relied upon. Numbers 23 says, God is not a man that he should lie. So he cannot go back on his promise. That's what Abraham knew. He could not deny who he was. That's what Abraham knew. See, that is a faith that can patiently trust God. So considering the faithfulness of the one making the promise is the principle. It's the principle means of strengthening faith in the promise. And I believe that God, because of his character, must bring to pass the very things he has promised. He must do it. But there's a problem that we have. And here's the problem that we struggle with every single day. God delays his promise. He's given us the promise in word. We have, in some ways, experienced the promise by hearing the word of God by realizing how, what God has done in the church, by allowing the gospel to go out into the world and us receiving it and, and realizing the Spirit of God is definitely transforming us and making us new. We realize all that. But still daily, there's a challenge to live by faith. 
especially when our eyes are dimmed with tears of sorrow and grief. And our ears are distracted with the noises of the world and so many voices vying for our attention. When our passions to achieve great plans in our life fall apart, when friends fail us, and even brothers and sisters in Christ betray us. The sense of God's presence, sometimes it seems hidden from us. And we have a hard time, we have a hard time synthesizing God's frowning providences with His gracious promises. See, there's the struggle we have. That's where we live. We live right there. But does it mean that God's unfaithful because that's where we live? No, he already told us we're sojourners and aliens, so we don't belong here anyway. We belong somewhere else, but we're here to accomplish God's work. That's why we're here. So God must fulfill his promises even though his people feel this delay. That's why we need faith. We need to trust God. That's what we need to do. For example, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 13 through 60, you don't have to turn there, but Jehovah declared to Abraham, as he said this, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. And then it says in verse 16, Then in the fourth generation they will return there, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Say, because God's promise is based on historical timing, and when a long time passes, like 430 years, Abraham's descendants groaned under Egyptian bondage, did that mean that God had forgotten his promise? No. For this is what the scriptures record in Exodus 12, 41. And at the end of the 430 years, to the very day, that's what it says in scripture, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. At God's precise moment, boom, they were delivered through a man called Moses. Then when many years, many, many years later, God promised through the prophet Isaiah, that he would send a promised deliverer, a one greater than Moses, where it's recorded in Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she, she shall call his name Emmanuel. This would not happen for many hundreds of years later. Does that mean God has forgotten his promise? No. This is what the scripture records for us in Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth a son born of a woman, born under the law. See that through Jesus the Messiah, even we will be made the recipients of the blessing of Abraham. And isn't that what Galatians also tells us? That the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying that all the nations will be blessed in you, in you, right? And what was the covenant God made with Abraham? 
I will make you a great nation, right? And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. Right? That's what God promised Abraham. And all who believed in the God of Abraham would be blessed because of Abraham's faith. So it says in Galatians, so then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham. And then it says this, the believer. That Abraham was simply the believer. What's that? Someone who trusts completely in what God has said. And then it tells us this in Galatians, in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What is that? That's the new covenant, right? So he's bringing all these things together. And the point is, our God may be patiently and safely relied upon because God is true and his word of promise is sure. Now, that's all verse 11. Let's look at verse number 12 of Hebrews chapter 11. And let's see the results of living a life of faith in God. And I'm not going to spend time, a lot of time here, because it's a package. It's a sandwich. It's really, if you look at verse number 11, or excuse me, verse number 12, it says this, of chapter 11, it says, therefore, he's concluding, he's wrapping it up, and you know what he is saying? He's saying this, listen, living by faith does not mean you have the ability to accomplish anything. Living by faith does not mean you have all the promises God promised fulfilled now. Living by faith doesn't mean that the place that you live now is your secure home in which you will dwell in forever. That's what it doesn't mean that. What it does mean is that those who live by faith patiently rest in God's faithfulness because God gives the ability, because God fulfills his promise, because God will bring us safely to the heavenly country, because God has already made peace between you and I through Christ Jesus. So, in verse 12, it's really saying this, that he lived without having ability, in verse, but yet by faith, look, look what God accomplished. He, God accomplished three things. He accomplished, accomplishes first the unfathomable, verse 12. Therefore, there was born even one man. Now, God made a great, a great nation out of how many? One, Right? He also accomplished the impossible in verse number 12. And him as good as dead at that. In other words, his body was dead to produce any offspring. His wife's body was dead to produce any offspring. So God accomplished the impossible and gave the ability, gave the power to have something that was impossible to have. And in verse number 12, God accomplishes the innumerable. Look what it says in verse 12. As many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore that descendants of Abraham are going to be uncountable. From one man. Who could do that? If you don't have faith in God where God gives the ability for it to happen. No one. So it wasn't Abraham. It was God. 
Secondly, without receiving the promises, he lived by faith. Look at verse 13. See, by faith, look what faith understood. All these died in faith. Brethren, there's only one way to die. Actually, there's two ways to die. You can die in your sin, right? Or you can die in the Lord. Or, as Hebrews put it, you can die in faith. You can die to the last minute of breath believing God. In fact, today is one year my father passed away. March 6th. And it just came to my mind just this instant that he died in faith. Past 70 years old, trusting Christ. Died in faith. You know how the, the joy that brings you to know someone died in the Lord, died in faith. My father died without receiving the full promises. But I tell you what, he knows about him now. Matter of fact, more than we do. But see, what did faith understand? Look what it says in verse 13. Faith saw. It says, and all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them. See, faith sees because God says this is what will happen. And then secondly, Look what faith does. It welcomes, in verse 13, and having welcomed them from a distance. In other words, they saw them and they put their eyes upon them and they moved toward them and they received the promise and expected to receive all of it when God said they are to receive it. And then notice in verse number 13 also, faith confessed having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. What does that mean? You know what that means? They responded to the promise and agreed. Because you know what? Confess often means in the Greek to agree with someone. That they agreed with God that this is the best way to bring about the result of the promise. The sending of Messiah to be crucified the long periods of time so we can grow in our faith, the not giving the Gospel of John first, but Genesis first, and then all of Old Testament history before we even got to the cross in the New Testament. This was God's plan all the way. They confessed that God's plan is the best plan, and there is no one better than it that will save a man's soul and provide to him all the promises that God said he would promise. And then he lived by faith without receiving a country. Look at verse 14. Yet by faith he looked to what he will receive. Verse 14, their own country. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. In other words, that they were looking for a country but not here on earth. They were looking for the country that God promised, the city of God, the eternal city of God. And they were looking at it, look what it says, as their own. Oh, I own a lot of property. I'm very wealthy. Yes. Matter of fact, I am so wealthy, I don't know how much I have. Either you're crazy when you say that, but I am, and so are you if you know Christ. You may not have wealth here on this earth, but I tell you why, you got more wealth than you even know you have. Because we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Right? That means everything he owns, we own. And so therefore, we are very wealthy in the sense that, listen, we're seeking a country 
that is our own. That's what we're seeking. And then secondly, in verse 15, just to make sure you didn't mistaken what was said, he says this, not their old country, Um, Eric, check the baptismal water. It must have sprung on some way, for some reason. I don't know if anybody's messing around down there. We're going to have a flood here. Are you ready? Are you on the ark? Are you on the ark? It's like Jamie Winship says, get on the boat, man. If you want to be saved, get on the boat. But anyway. Secondly, look at verse 15. Not their old country. He wanted to make sure. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country, that means if they had been remembering where they came from, from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. In other words, when they left, they never wanted to go back once they understood the promises of God. You never, if you, if you believe in Christ, you cannot look back. Once you put your hand to the plow, And look back, you're not worthy for the kingdom of God. You know what this is? Faith brings one to the point of no return. You know what the point of no return is? I I looked it up a little bit, and it's it's an aeronautical jargon. It's aeronautical jargon. And it means that when a plane takes off, there's a point where a pilot knows he cannot turn back and go where he came from because he don't have enough fuel. So there's a point in the sky where he knows he has to keep going forward and land. He cannot go back. So that's the point of no return. And faith brings us to the place where we know we can't go back to the world. We can't go back to our sinful practices. We can't go back to the way it used to be. We can't, we don't even desire to go back. We don't want to go back anymore because we have reached by faith the point of no return. We have to go forward. Is the waters rough? Yes. Is there going to be persecution? Yes. Are there going to be more sufferings in all, on all kinds of levels? Yes. Because God said there would be. So we ought to expect it. But, see, we are looking to, if there was nothing at the end of the of the race, we would have nothing to live for. But God has placed before us something at the end of the race. Look at verse 16. Here it is. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Let me just stop there. This is the ability that faith has. That biblical faith has the ability to distinguish between good and evil between the eternal and the temporal, between the permanent and the perishable, and see and choose God's way and are happy about it. That's what they desire. That's what they want. But here's the best of all. Here's the best of all. That not only did they have faith without ability, without receiving the promises, without receiving the country, but without receiving shame. Look what it says in verse 16. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. See, there it is. 
There's no shame that we have before God because of what Christ has done. You realize that? This is the best of all. That God is not ashamed to call you His children. He's not ashamed of you. There's nothing to keep you from Him. There's nothing to bar you from the city, from the country that we're heading to. It's like what Paul said also. He said, listen, for this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that He is able to guard what I've entrusted to Him until that day. Until that day, you and I are face to face with God. And when that day comes, there is no shame because of our sin. There's only joy upon joy because of what Christ has done. Everything's moved out of the way. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And therefore, what we have to look forward to is nothing but joy. In fact, if you have your thinking caps on, and I hope you do, that you'll notice that this is exactly where the new covenant is heading. Now, just to remind you that in the new covenant, everyone in the new covenant will have a new heart. Everyone in the new covenant will have complete and final forgiveness of sins. Everyone in the new covenant will have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God and everyone in the new covenant will have the law inside their heart. For when Jeremiah wrote, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And then this is what he says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. God is not ashamed of us. The new covenant people get to dwell with God in the city of God that God has built for them. Why? Because because of their Savior, Jesus Christ. That's it. Because of what he's done. Because he's taken the wrath. Because he's removed it. He satisfied the justice of God. We're free. Now, what does that sound like? Take your Bibles for a minute and turn to Revelation 21, verse 1 through 6, because it sounds like That's what he says in Revelation 21. Where he says in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there is no longer any sea. Verse 2 of Revelation 21. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And notice what it says, And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And verse 4, And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, And there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things pass away. All things new, excuse me. And he says, Right, for these are words. These words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts 
from the spring of water, of the water of life without cost. In other words, it's amazing what Revelation does after it gives us the summation of the new covenant and where God's plan is heading. He says this, the invitation's still open. If you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, today is the day. If you are, if God, the Spirit of God have caused a thirst in you to drink of the springs of the water of life, you can do it without cost. You don't have to bring a thing. Just come with your sin. Come to Christ with your sin so the invitation is still open. And that means that the full and final glory, which is intended for for people by God is made available and made secure for those only through the suffering death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the spirit of God himself applies the word of God with special power to the chosen to the ones who have desire so they see themselves in this way I must believe in Jesus I must trust Him. He's the only way to make me right with God. I must actively repent of my sin and turn to Him. And then, of course, be awakened to a changed life and confidence in Christ. And then, the covenant purpose will be known to them and fulfilled in them, for they shall be saved from the wrath to come. See, that's what God's, God does. So Jesus is inviting all who have not yet come to enter glory through himself. The only entryway into the presence of God, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. So brethren, see, that's where we're heading. God's prepared us in a way when we're in front of him, when we're, that there's no more shame. But I tell you what, those who don't know him, they'll want to run from his presence. But they, can't, they won't be able to run. At the great white throne judgment, they'll not be able to run because God's books are accurate. They're infallible. He makes no mistakes. And they will have to pay for all eternity for the great, 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 unpayable debt of their sin and offense against God. That's why we need Christ. That's why Christ is our prize. That's why we have to look at these scriptures and we need to be like Abraham. So the challenge to you is that you will become people of great faith. That you'll carefully listen to God's word. That you'll carefully persevere until you get home. That you'll carefully rest on the faithfulness of God because that's what we have to rest on. That's what we have to rest on. And remember, God's faithful. He can't deny himself. So I'm throwing it all on him. But you know what? I I do it with great confidence. I do it with great security because he has proved himself to us. Not that he had to, but he has throughout history till this very day that what God says must come to pass and will come to pass. And all God's people said, let's pray.
Lord Jesus, this morning, as even we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table, again, the focus being on your death in our behalf, I praise you, Lord, for the examples of faith that are before us, that were in, in Scripture. And, I, and I, I do ask you, Lord, that you would build in us a faith that is strong, that completely rests in you. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you may use our life to bring forth the light of the gospel to those who have not yet heard. When this world is out of control, I pray, Lord, that they people would see that we're in control. When this world gives no hope, I pray, Lord, that you use us to show that we not only have a message of hope, but we live that hope. And I pray, Lord, that you would, again, use your people and your church to go into this world and bring the only message wherein a person may be saved. And I pray that you would use us in that manner. And so this morning, Lord, we give you glory and we give you praise for all that you've done and all that you will do. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.